Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. I think I'm going to, I hope, relatively briefly recap the issue of tzitzit kissing and then move on to the third uh, blessing of the Shema service. Can, that can I okay? ask one question first, which yes? precedes the tzitzit kissing? Okay. And that is, I, I came away from the last session unclear about saying amen uh, to the bracha that just before the Shema. Um, I, in, I, in general, <clears throat> the established correct practice is you do say amen, sorry, from Baruch until the Amida, okay, when you're not supposed to interrupt except like, you know, if a king is walking by or someone important says good morning, whatever, there are all kinds of halakhot about that. Mm-hmm. You're not supposed to interrupt to talk. Saying amen to a bracha that you hear is not considered an interruption as long as you are not in the middle of a paragraph of the Shema, right? So in other words, if we're doing it regular, you get to the end of Habocher Yisrael Biahava, you say Amen. Uh, sorry, and then you hear the Chazan say it. You say Amen to the Chazan's bracha, if you hear the, the Chazan saying it aloud, okay? You do not say Baruch Hu Baruch Shemo. That is considered an interruption because that's a minhag. It's a custom. It's not halacha. Whereas saying amen when you hear someone recite a bracha is halacha. If someone says hamotzi and you are not eating and they say hamotzi aloud, you're supposed to say amen. Okay. You say, hear anyone recite a bracha, you're supposed to say amen. So if you are not in the middle of a shmop, one of the three paragraphs in the middle of a paragraph and you hear the chazan say amen, you say amen, which the, that's a long answer. The short answer, Michael, is yes. Now, the exception to that is after the third bracha between Gaal Yisrael and the Amida, and that's more complicated, and we'll get to that when we get to that. But Baruch HaTashem Yotzer HaMeorot and Baruch HaTashem HaBocher Bamo Yisrael Biahava, you do say Amen to. Thank you. To, to, uh, <clears throat> which means, by the way, um, in many of the conservative shuls that we grew up with, with a high holiday choir, right? Where the chazan goes, Baruch Hashem. And then we expect everyone to say, Baruch Hu, Baruch Hu, the choir. It's wrong. Okay. You don't, because you don't say Baruch Hu, Baruch Shemo um, to these brachot around the Shema. Okay. Now, one thing I want to clarify, just to take us to the beginning, if you look right after the Baruch Hu, look at Baruch Hu, page 96 in the short and stout edition, and page 30 in the slim. Okay. After Baruch Hu, there is a blessing. Baruch HaTashem Elokeinu Melchalam Yotzer Or Uvorei Choshech Oseh Shalom Uvorei Et HaKol. This is the opening line of a bracha, which continues until Baruch HaTashem Yotzer HaMeorot at the bottom of the next page. It is only the opening line. It, it's, the, it's the opening of a, of a idea. So you do not say amen after that. This is a wide misconception in the non-Orthodox movements. So 
you hear the Chazan say, you do not say Amen, because it's not the end of the bracha, it's just the opening. It would be as if you, it would be, to do that would be as if you heard the Chazan do like this, beginning of the Amidah. Baruch Hashem, Elokeinu, Elokeinu, Amen. Okay? It would be as wrong as that. Right? Baruch Hashem, Elohei Avraham, Elohei Yitzchak, Elohei Yaakov, is only the opening of a thematic unit called a bracha. Everyone with me? So you don't interrupt after an opening. You only say it at the end of the bracha. The blessing ends, Baruch HaTashem Yotzer HaMeorot. That's where the first blessing of the Shema service ends. Just to recap, the blessing which is about God as creator. Everyone with me on that? So Baruch Hashem Yotzer Or Uvorech Hoshech Oseh Shalom Amen. Wrong. You do not say Amen. Then, other example of that, which would be obvious to you, first paragraph of the benching. Baruch Hashem Elokeinu Melech Haolam Hazan Et Haolam Kulo B'Tuvo Bechein Bechesed Uvrachamim Amen. You don't do that, right? You wait till the end of the paragraph, if the Chazan says, Baruch Hashem, Hazan and Hakol, and then you say Amen, if you're listening to someone else do the benching, right? Because it's a paragraph that starts with the words, Baruch Hashem, and ends with the words, Baruch Hashem. It's one bracha, that is called a bracha aruka. Now I'm taking us back all the way to the beginning, beginning, beginning. Where's Terry? I need her. So, so a bracha aruka, which means a long bracha blessing, is a thematic unit on one theme, which opens, just a second, Jonathan, opens with the words Baruch Hashem and closes with the words Baruch Hashem. All of that is considered one bracha, right? Halachically. So you only say amen if you, you have finished already and you hear the chazan recite it, then you say amen at the end. Okay? So just as you wouldn't say amen in the middle of the first paragraph of benching or in the middle of the first paragraph of the Amidah, you don't say amen in the middle of the first Shema blessing. All right? And one more thing, and then I'll get to Jonathan's question. You only say amen if you have already finished the bracha and then you hear the chazan say, Baruch Hashem HaBocher Bamo Yisrael if you finish with the chazan, you do not say amen because you do not say amen to your own blessings with rare exceptions. Everyone with me on that? Okay. So if everyone is singing Kiddush with the chazan, the way we do in California, in non-Orthodox synagogues in California, I'll give the full Californian pronunciation. Borei Peri Hagafen, emphasizing the wrong syllable. <laughs> you don't, if you say it together with Chazan, you don't say Amen, because if you finish a bracha with someone else, you don't say Amen, because then you're saying Amen to your own blessing. If you finish the blessing and then you hear the Chazan say Baruch Ata Hashem Elokeinu Melcholam Yotzer Hameorot or Habocher B'Mo Yisrael B'Yava, then you say Amen. Jonathan, yes, yeah, so you say it. Uh, but do you say it? I'm a little confused on the bottom of 31 when it says Yotzer Hamerot. Yes. 
Okay. Yes. So those, those two places you say, yes. just, not, just not in the beginning. Okay. Correct. Okay. Correct. Right. And there are certain, uh, um, certain more traditional Sidurim that it will have in small print in parentheses, the word Amen after it, which means the, your, you, the congregation are supposed to say this once you hear the Chazan saying it. We're really in the weeds here. Okay. <laughs> We're serving God through in our, in our detail of practice. Are there any other questions about the Amains? Larry, unmute, please. It's just a question about the Amains. It's a question about the kissing the CC at the very end you mentioned. But I didn't talk about that yet. I was going to review it. Oh, well, when you review it, would you also explain why almost all the Cedarim, but especially the conservative Cedarim, have the have it wrong, or at least suggest at least guide us in the wrong direction? All right, I'm not sure what you're referring to, but I'll, I'm going to review it now, and then you'll ask your question. Okay, so um, I did a little more digging. <clears throat> uh, so again, the Shulchan Aruch says that some pe- all it says is some people have a custom. When we get to Ur'itemoto and you see them, the tzitzit, that you're supposed to look at the tzitzit. And then it says, and some people have the custom to pass the tzitzit before their eyes. And then there are later customs. Some people hold the tzitzit. And, um, and there is no clear, unambiguous halachic guidance about how many tzitzit you hold, when you hold them, if you kiss them, or when you kiss them. Now, there's a lot of halachic guidance about that, but it's all minhag. It's all custom, not halacha. It's all after the Shulchan Aruch which means it's late and there are multiplicity of customs. What I tracked down was it is the Ari, Rabbi Isaac Luria, the mystical rabbi of the 1500s, the Arizal, who said that you gather all four tzitziot. And he is the spiritual answer of uh, ancestor of Hasidism. Okay. So most Hasidim would follow, and this includes, and what's our our American main access to Hasidut? Ritual. Chabad. So Chabad, which is a Hasidic movement, which follows the Ari, would gather all four corners. Um, it seems to me that the more non-Hasidic yeshivish practice which is clearly endorsed by, we said, the Vilna Gaon, late 1700s, and Rav Chaim of Volozhin, great yeshiva master of the mid to late 1800s. That means two great mitnagdic, non-Hasidic authorities, we would just call it yeshivish, says you only hold the first two tzitzit. You do not gather up the back two tzitzit. Okay. And also, I'm not sure they kiss either. I don't think they kiss. And we could, again, we talked last time, we could, we could think of reasons of why the four and why the two and why do you kiss the tzitzit? Because it's like, because it shows that you love the mitzvah. Why do you not kiss the tzitzit? Because there's actually nothing holy about strings and it looks a little bit like what would be called in the yeshivish world, avodah zara, idol worship. Okay. So, um, so there could be good arguments for before and against, but 
what has come down to us as it seems to be, I, I don't want to say it's authoritative conservative practice. It's not authoritative. It's all minhag, right? See, but it seems to be, I'm going to say not quite universal, but, you know, 95% universal in non-Orthodox circles is you gather up the tzitziot at bring us from the four corners of the earth. You gather all four. You hold them in your left hand. Again, the halacha says between the fourth and the fifth finger. I read a Chabad website that says you actually do a, a bunch of other windings. So next time I, I bump into a Chabad rabbi or you do ask them about where they hold their tzitzit in their hand. For the first two paragraphs of the Shema, you hold it in your left hand because the left is the side of your heart. 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 When you get to the third paragraph, Vayomer, you either transfer the tzitzit to your right hand or you hold them, you, 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 you know, move them to your right hand and hold them like this in front of you. And then during the paragraph, there are three kissings, tzitzit, right? The fourth kissing is on emet, okay? And then the halacha does say, when you get to, I want everyone to go to the box, Lador Vador Hukayam, in the middle of page 34, at the third line of Emet Vyatsiv, right? Emet Vyatsiv, middle of 102, or middle of 34, Emet Vyatsiv, and Akon Vakayam, to the box, Lador Vador Kayam, Shmokayam, Zanakon, Mahotov, and Kolad Kayamet, keep going, Udvarav Chayim, Kayamim, Nemadim, Nechmadim, Laad. Let's just call that the second la'ad. So the halacha says that if you are holding your tzitzit, you release them when you get to that la'ad, okay? Um, and if you're a tzitzis kisser, you kiss your tzitzit at that la'ad, and then you release it. So that makes five kissings. But it does appear to me that Chabad, from the website that I saw, also kisses at the first la'ad, so Chabad has six kissings, tzitzit three times, emet, and the word la'ad both times. But when you bump into a Chabad rabbi, you should ask that question. How many times do you people kiss the tzitzit in the Shema? I believe the answer is six. All right. All of this is minhag, and I don't mean to confuse you as, you know, minhag, uh, the, the principle in halacha is minhag avotenu biadenu ve'en l'shanot, which means... If we, when we have our ancestors' minhag legacied to us, you don't change it. So if you have a legacy of this is how I did it in my shul growing up, or this is what my parent taught me, then that is your minhag. If you don't have a minhag, ask your rabbi, Bernie, and then Larry. Uh, if you're if you're left-handed and your tefillin therefore is on your right arm, it doesn't matter. It does not matter. So although Tefillin switches with the strong arm and the weak arm. Um, tzitzit clearly halachically does not change with the strong arm and the weak arm. Doesn't matter if you're right or lefty. So you 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 switch it from one to the other, but if it's awkward on the hand, that you 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 doesn't matter. Same thing, correct? Right? Yeah. Thank you. So, so same thing. Left hand for the first two paragraphs. Right hand for the third paragraph, and right hand until the end, until you release them. I didn't make that clear, but at, when you get to a met, you don't put it back in the left hand. You keep holding it in the right hand. Larry. Yeah, so 
I'm, I'm looking first at the um, uh, sax corn. Yes. And indeed, he does have the symbol on on that second layout. Yeah. I guess I always saw people actually say the entire phrase, la'ad ulame ulamim. Yeah. And then kiss it. Yeah. Similarly, I guess kissing at liad kayamet, the liad before kayamet, which you say is also a minhag in the in the Chabad world. Yeah. What I've always seen Shichesi Bourdu is say liad kayamet and then kiss. Yes. And then drop. And that appears to be universal in the non-Orthodox movements. I don't know how. The question is. Is that an error? The halacha said la'ad and people got confused and thought it was the first la'ad and not the second la'ad. I, I don't, I was unable to track down why and why it's common that the shliach tzibur says that aloud and then stops, right? As if now we all kiss and drop our tzitzit and then we go on when in fact it's actually in the next line where you're supposed to kiss and drop your tzitzit. So I was unable to track down how that minhag migrated in was created and why the Chazan says that line. So I have a very practical question. By the way, and I even think in Orthodox circles, the Chazan says that line. I don't think so. You don't, don't think so. so? No. Okay. That's what they start saying. Got it. Um, so Meyer, if you can, if, uh, well, there's no kiddish to pull. Rabbi Konevsky aside at. Well, whatever. Someday when there's Kiddush and you can pull Rabbi Konevsky aside, ask him how he thinks the conservatives, why he thinks there are people who do Lador, why they kiss and why the Chazan says that aloud. And has he ever seen that in an Orthodox shul or does he just think it is just plain wrong? I don't know the answer. I don't know that he'll have the answer either, but okay. He might know. He might just say, if he says... I've never seen that, and it's wrong. That means it is universal Orthodox custom not to do that, and we don't know. And yeah. and then I would ask a Chabad rabbi that same question also, because it does appear that Chabad has all kinds of different extra min hagim. As they oh, they do definitely about, do. As they do about so many things. Right. They also incorporate partly Sephardi customs too, so which well, would be more confusing. It's not, yes, it's not. I'm going to give a short answer, and if you don't understand what I'm saying, then... Never mind. It's not real Sephardi customs, okay? Meaning right. it's not what a Jew from Greece who calls himself Sephardic does. It's not a Mizrahi custom. It's, it all goes back to the Ari because the Ari, Rabbi Isaac Luria in the 1500s, created a new, he was a, I've heard him referred to by uh, Professor Pinchas, Rabbi Pinchas Giller at, at um, AJU. He was, he was the original shul hopper. Um, he gathered, he created a new minhag of various rituals and he incorporated some Sephardi elements. So what Hasidim call Nusach Sfard isn't really what Sephardim from Spanish origins do. It's what Hasidim call Nusach Sfard. It's their own mostly going back to the Ari practice, and that's because the Ari incorporated Sephardic elements into his practice. He shul-hopped, right, in in, in Egypt, and Eretz Israel and Sfat, right? And he, so he went around and he, he incorporated some 
Sephardic elements, even though he was Ashkenazi. So I just want to be clear about that. When you buy an Orthodox Sidur in general, and I'm going to take it back. It really depends on which Sidur you get. But when, when yeshivish people say, oh, he's Davani Nusach Svard, it's not what a Sephardi Jew would consider Sephardic. It, that means the Hasidic lineage that does a Nusach called Nusach Svard, which incorporates some elements of Sephardic practice, and it goes back to the Ari in general. Okay? It doesn't I mean, go back. It doesn't, there, there's no one who, who was raised in Bulgaria who is Sephardic, whose last name is Lopez, who would say to you, that is Sephardic. They would say, this is something else. We don't know what this is. I've never heard it before. That's what they would say. Okay. Harvey, yep. I have a practical question. With me. Larry, then Jonathan. Then I want to move on forward. Yeah. Before the practical question, I'll just, I'll, a very short story. When I was saying Kaddish for my mother, and I was living in Israel, um, and I used to then take opportunity to go to a, wherever the shul was closest, I, I was almost traumatized because there were so many shuls I'd enter where the new stock was not familiar to me. And not just Sparad and, and Mizrahi and Ari. And even though I was pretty conversant by that point, I could get lost in the service. Yeah. And get lost in the, in the, in the different forms of the Kaddish as well. Yeah. Anyways, practically speaking, for someone like me, who is doing it all wrong in many different ways. I won't enumerate the different ways, but I have the way in which I've done it. And having followed what you said the other day, tried to change what I'm doing and find it so awkward that it interferes with my davening. Would you suggest just going ahead and doing what you're doing or training oneself to do it the right way? I will give you two answers, at least two answers. One is ask your rabbi, and I am not your rabbi. Answer number two is uh, you are serving God as best you know how, and I am certain that Hashem appreciates your love of God and the way you are serving God. Um, Of course, some secularist answer would be, who cares? It doesn't matter. All right. And there are other potential answers. Um, You know, it could also be, Whatever your custom is, that's that you and you in, that you inherited. However, you inherited it. Okay, that's the custom. Now you're going to take me. I don't want to go too far afield, but I do want to say this is a, a side issue, sort of, but not unrelated. There's a there's a professor and famous rabbi named Chaim Soloveitchik. He's not the Rav Soloveitchik. He's his <clears throat> Rav Soloveitchik's. I can't remember nephew. I don't remember. Anyway, he wrote an article in an Orthodox journal about 25 years ago, which I don't remember what it was called. It was a long article. And he basically complained in that article. And he said, Judaism Judaism always used to be your correct minhag, the correct minhag, always used to be, you know, what your mother did in the kitchen and your father did in the shul, meaning you grew up at someone's knee as a part of a community and you inherited a minhag and that was Judaism, okay? And he said, nowadays, there are all these people, he didn't, he didn't 
overtly criticize Bale Chuva, but it was an implicit criticism. Um, there are all these people who go by book Judaism. Someone publishes a new book that says this was the wrong minhag and you have to eat this amount of matzah, you know, et cetera, or all kinds of things. And people say like all of a sudden, oh, what we've been doing all these years, what I grew up thinking was the correct way is wrong. Someone is telling me because the book says it's wrong. It might be. And he called the first thing mimetic Judaism from like imitating mimetic. Right. He said Judaism, we all grew up with is mimetic Judaism. And now it's being replaced by book Judaism. And he criticized that. Uh, it was a major broadside within the Orthodox community. And it was sort of against the rise of, you know, art scrollism and Baal Chuvaism. And I have a new Sefer that has more Minhagim than your Sefer, so I can show you the correct Minhag, right? Um, then there was a backlash. A lot of people said, like, he's right, he's right, right? There, we've lost the element of folk religion. It's what you grew up with. It's handed down from one generation to the next. And it's all just like, it's become like, what does the book say about the correct way to do it? And then there was a backlash against Rav Chaim Soloveitchik by other people who said, um, look, he's just a grumpy old guy who doesn't like the fact that the world, he was only middle-aged, he's not really, wasn't old, but mm-hmm. you know, he's just a grumpy guy who doesn't like the fact that the world has changed. We are blessed that we live in a world where there is so much more publishing and so much more material accessible to the general Jewish world. We don't have to rely on folk customs, which may have been wrong. We have greater access to books, which tells us the correct way to do things halachically. And he's just a grumpy old guy that, you know, the sun has set on the world that he grew up in and he's being a grumpy complainer about that. The same way that there are other people who say, whatever happened to penmanship? People don't know how to write cursive neatly anymore. And everyone else says, you're just an old dinosaur. No one cares. Right? So there was this, this kind of debate that went on at that point in time about kind of, do we look to authoritative books to find, put it in air quotes, the right way to do it? Or, again, I am being gendered, and I will, I will gendered and sexist, and I will acknowledge that and apologize for that. But, you know, my mother taught me how to keep a kosher kitchen. That's how you keep a kosher kitchen. I don't, I don't go to a book to look how to keep a kosher kitchen. And if I have a question about something I'm not sure about, then I go ask the local rabbi. By the way, my mother, may she rest in peace, had the minhag that to kosher glass, I want to know if anyone grew up with this, kosher glass for Pesach, you're supposed to, besides the fact it has to be cleaned, you soak it in water for 72 hours and you change the water every 24 hours. So we used to have, we had a basement, East Coast basement with a laundry room and we had these plastic tubs can't, you can't see me reaching down. All these ridiculous plastic tubs on the floor with all of this glassware soaking for 72 hours before Pesach with the water. My mother would pour the water out every 24 hours, put in new water. 
And then I grew up and, and I've discovered, just so you know, there, if you read any authoritative book about Pesach, it says, and there is no basis whatsoever for this minhag. Hmm. Okay? Or if you trafe up a utensil, Larry, if you trafe up a spoon, it sounds like Larry grew up in a similar similar folk customs. If you trafe up a spoon, it has nothing to do with Pesach, Milchik Fleishik, what do you do with it, Larry? Bury it in the garden. Bury it in the ground for, I don't know, 24 hours or something. You know, you clean it and then you bury it. And again, I don't believe there's, it's a folk minhag, right? It's not halacha. And if you read nowadays, modern things about glassware, they say, wash your glassware. The lenient people say, oh, you know, but, but uh, the, the strict people say, oh, it's yeah. But the lenient people say, just rinse your glassware and it's fine. Okay. So there's no 72 hours changing the water. So when I first started not, doing it the way my mother did it, I felt guilty. I felt like minhag avotenu biadenu, right? I've inherited my ancestral minhag, my mother's minhag, and now I am I am defying her in the grave. She's spinning in the grave to see me just like <laughs> run my glassware through the dishwasher and say, it's kasher lepesach. All right. Jonathan had a question before, then Michael. And yeah, I see, uh, I see we're not moving on to the third blessing of the Shema. But we next week, God willing, we will we will not review tzitzis kissing. We will not talk about any of this stuff. We're going to start with emet and then go on. Jonathan, um, yeah, maybe I missed it. You said the fourth time you kiss your uh, tzitzit is emet, but yes, you go, go through the first three times. Yeah, when you say the word tzitzit. Oh, okay. In in vayomer, when we say the word tzitzit three times. Okay, okay. Yeah, Larry, uh, Michael, Mike yes. had a hand up. Uh, another anecdote. On, on Kashrut. Yeah. My, my son uh, has smicha in several fields, including Kashrut. So I asked yeah. him a Kashrut question one time, and yeah. his response was, that's a question for Peril, his wife. You know, the practical answer. Right. Correct. Right. Because right, in, in pious circles, women learn Kashrut from other women, okay? Because in pious sexist circles about who keeps the kitchen, um, I, I will close, uh, with an anecdote about that in a moment. Um, and she, you know, she learned it, if they're Bali, if she's a Bali, if they're Bali Chuva, she learned it from the Rebetzin, right? She didn't learn it from the rabbi. She learned it from the Rebetzin. Okay. And then when there's a question, I don't know this, uh, what do I do with it? Then you ask the rabbi, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so <clears throat> there is a, I will close with this. There's a guy I follow online. I realize I haven't seen him in a while. So that must mean my, my spam blocker is blocking him and I got to get him back in. Um, his name is Rabbi Chaim Ovadia. He is in at the moment, I think, DC. And he is a uh, true Sephardi. See, Sephardic lineage from Spain or North Africa. I'm actually not sure. Um, he is, the, by the way, the Sephardic rabbis tend to be lenient. Uh, the, the, the North African Mizrahi world tends to be lenient. When they came in contact in Israel with Ash, Ashkenazim, they got more strict because they had to look over their right shoulder. Um, in North Africa, by the way, they used electricity on the second day of Yom Tov. Sorry, not second day. They used electricity on Yom Tov, right? 
because you can light fire on Yom Tov. They use electricity on Yom Tov. Or maybe it's only the second day of Yom Tov. I'm not sure. Don't quote me on that. Uh, you could look it up. Um, and then they got to Israel and the, the, the Ashkenazi rabbi said, like, you're wrong. And they sort of caved in on that. So Rav Chaim Ovadia is a guy who's trying to restore Sephardi pride and study Sephardi halacha. He's also established um, an online rabbinical school. You should subscribe to him. Look him up, Chaim, H-A-I-M, Ovadia, O-V-A-D-I-A. So he always publishes this stuff about um, Pesach. He's extremely lenient. But he says, I follow the halacha, and all these extra things are stringent things that you don't really need to do. And he basically says, if you grew up with it and you feel like you need to, you may do that. He In, in his Pesach instructions... He abbreviates that as FGF, for good feeling, right? Mm-hmm. So he says, like, glassware, it, you clean it, you rinse it, it's kasher le Pesach. You can run it through the dishwasher, FGF, right? Mm-hmm. For, meaning if it helps you feel like you did it more kosher that way, then great, you can do that. But you really don't have to do that. He's very lenient um, about all kinds of things. So when I read these things, what I wonder to myself is, um, does Rebetzin Ovadia listen to him? (laughs) Or does Rebetzin Ovadia say, that's very nice, dear. You can publish that in the internet, but stay out of my kitchen and don't trafe things up. So (laughs) I just, I, I actually really... If I met him, I'd like to ask that question because there's so many things for Pesach he's so lenient on. And I, I'm, I'm guessing Rebetzin Ovadia, whoever she is, did not grow up with those leniencies. And I'm guessing that she might say, that's very lovely. You can write about that in your online blog, but stay out of my kitchen, please. I know how to make Pesach. So if anyone bumps into Rav Chaim Ovadia, please ask him this question. Does his wife actually listen to him on Kashrut things or she does what her mother taught her, which I suspect is stricter than what he says is permissible. He writes this, by the way, because he says people agonize about Pesach and then they couples get in fights with each other and it's such a burden and it's not supposed to be that way. It's supposed to be joyous. okay? and so all of this burden makes it so much work. And that's why people complain about Pesach. And it's supposed to be joyous, so why not do, you know, lenient positions which exist in the halakha and have existed for centuries? Why make it more strict on yourself, which really makes more work, so that when people get to the Seder or cooking for Pesach, they're really totally exhausted because they were working so hard for, you know, all week long or longer cleaning everything. Alan. Yeah, uh, bringing it a little, uh, a little closer to home, from um, uh, Rabbi Dorf shares a wonderful story about when he was making a ruling about whether you could have peanut butter, whether you could have peanut butter on on Pesach. He was going back and forth. He says, well, as long as it's smooth and not nutty. And then someone asked him, well, what do you do at home? And his response was, whatever Marlon says. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Correct. Right. So if, if you have a home where someone is the kitchen person and the shopping person, they are the ones who decide if the spoon gets buried in the ground or not. 
Okay. What, what, what do you do if you don't bury it in the ground, if you accidentally mix it up and don't you boil bury it? it in the ground? You boil it. You, you boil it. Same as for Pesach. Same as what you do with your silverware for Pesach. You have to boil it. Huh. You, know, you, you, you clean it thoroughly. I, don't, I think you don't use it for 24 hours, right? Clean it thoroughly, and then you drop it in a pot of boiling water. Same way, same way we kosher our dishes at Temple Beth Am for Pesach. Our our metal, sorry, these are metal utensils. Right, right, I'm talking right. about metal, right? Metal, one piece, not a knife with a handle. All of that is complicated. Um, uh, again, by the way, you know, lots of us know like Pesach knives with handles. You can't kosher them, right? But there are lenient authorities who say, no, you clean one end, you clean the other end. You stick the metal end in the boiling water, then you turn it around and you stick the wooden end in the boiling water, and it's koshered, right? But that is not the mainstream of opinion. Larry, everyone wants to have their own amusing anecdote. Larry, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Thousand stories, but about the last one, before we made Aliyah, I mean, Diane on Pesach was super strict, followed all the rules. We go to Un- unscrewing the handles from the pots. Oh man, of course. Everything. We go to Israel and they set up these places for kashering outside the shuls, the Orthodox Ca- shuls. Cauldrons, giant cauldrons. Yeah. And and you know, we're only gonna bring the things, of course, no wood, no plastic, none of that. And you get there and stand in line and everyone's bringing everything. And you start to ask questions, and it turns out that that people who are Orthodox, Ashkenazi Orthodox. They're going to the local community shul that we don't even go to because we're going to the Masorti shul. They're kashering everything. And they're not asking, and the rabbi isn't saying anything. He's saying, fine. Right, right. Okay, there we have it. So we will begin with Emmet. Hopefully, right, we will begin with Emmet next week. Um, I don't know. There have to be people who listen to this and you know, I don't know if someone who doesn't know anything about halakha, doesn't understand the concept of halakha, listen to this class, they would find it comical. So we talked about how often you and when you kiss your ritual fringes and, you know, the minutia of whether or not you unscrew the handle on the pot to kosher it for Pesach. That's what class was about today. So <laughs> we all we all serve Hashem in the best we know how in small ways and in big ways. So everyone go out there and be Torah and stay healthy. Um, And God willing, I'll see you next week. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to TBA.com. LA.org.